Hi, my name's Denise Cooper, and you've tuned in to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. My podcast comes out every week on Thursdays, and I'm so happy that you are here. Well, before I talk about my guests, I want to announce that I have a book out. It's called Remarkable Leadership Lessons, Change Results, One Conversation at a Time. Because you know, what am I about? Conversations. And I believe it is through conversation that we find meaning, belonging, and inclusion. We are energized by our conversation or we're pushed away and squelched by those same conversations. And it's all about our perspective. And the book is filled with short stories, three to five minutes of work I've done with people or where I learned how to be remarkable and what remarkable means in the workplace. Well, now let's go to our guest. His name is Dr. Kirk Beatty. He is the founder of Data Tech Information Systems, which was founded in 1996. He's in the tech realm, and he is a tech geek. Probably one of the smartest folks I know. And we all have perceptions of what being in the tech space is all about. But what if you find somebody who defies those stereotypes, who brings a lived experiences to the table and changes the way you think about people and makes you go, ooh, wasn't expecting that. But Kurt's that kind of guy. He went to North Carolina A&T and got his doctor degree in ethnic and gender diversity in the boardroom, particularly women. And the reason he got there is because he has a daughter. And his daughter, hmm, it's growing up. And he was concerned that she was going to have some experiences in the workplace that may not have been the best for her, and he wanted to do something about it. What we're going to talk about is what he discovered in his um, degree and, and his journey to be more inclusive, to understand these issues of diversity, and also to take steps so that he created a workplace so that everybody felt like they belonged and contributed at their highest level. With that, Dr. Kirk Baker. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is Denise Cooper, and you are listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. This week's interview is with a gentleman who, hmm, how should I best say, defies stereotypes. And I think when we, uh, when you listen to this interview, you will get what I mean. He literally defies stereotypes. My guest today is Kurt Beatty. Hello, Denise. How are you doing today? And thank you for inviting me here to have this conversation with you. And uh, thank you for the introduction. Maybe been more gracious than most people would uh, think to offer, but thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, Kurt and I met at a um, National Black Accountants meeting, I believe it was. Right? It was the, uh, I think it was MBA, uh, was it the National? Like MBA uh, Association. Here in Charlotte. Here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I must tell you that when I walked in to present, and for the most part, when you go to the National Black MBA or National Black Accountants meetings, you typically are going to see mostly Black people there. Mm -hmm. But here was this gentleman, quiet, yet engaged the entire time and he happens to be white and Southern. That's right, that's right. Um, it was fascinating. And after that, he and I struck up a few conversations and 
we've just been a, in a distant connection for the last couple of years. So I see you, I know you, my guests don't see you, they don't know you. Tell us something that most people would be shocked to hear or just don't know about you. Well, I guess what most people won't know if they don't know, don't know me personally is, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in Charlotte. I grew up across the river, what is probably today better known, Mountain Island Lake. I grew up in Lucian, Gaston County. I went to Mount Holly primary, secondary schools, uh, graduated from East Gaston High School, and then go on to UNC Charlotte. And I complete my undergraduate in computer science there, and then um, I have a career in technology. Um, I started Data Tech Information Services Incorporated. We provide business technology services. We've been doing that since 1996. And along the way, I decided to go back and receive my MBA from UNC Charlotte, and which I would recommend for really anyone in the uh, that, that definitely has a technology background. An MBA really helps make you truly that better rounded person. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't give it much credit before I completed my MBA. But as I got into the program, I really saw what it was about. And of course, this was some years after I finished my undergraduate. You know, I really... Today, I would, um, if I'm looking for someone to bring leadership in my organization, you know, that graduate degree, that MBA will be something I pay attention to. But then, of course, as you know, Denise, you kind of alluded to this a little bit. In more recent years, uh, I found myself um, recognizing the fact that so much of what I do and so much of my every day is not some other people's normal. And it might be part of the obstructions that they realize. And uh, I had someone help turn the light on for me one day as so much of what we were doing in business. It was mostly people who looked like me. It was my network and where I was going and what we were doing in the data tech. And she kind of said, you know, I'm the only one here. And the first couple of times I looked around, I thought to myself, you know, okay, well, what do you expect? Because it was my normal, my everyday. I didn't think twice about the fact that when I go places and I do what I did, particularly at that time, there was most, most people looked like me and there may be one or two of somebody who was somewhat different, but okay, well, what's wrong with, with that? That's what I see every day. I don't think twice about it. And finally, the third time when that comment was made and I looked around, I thought, you know, she's right. So much of my every day, so much of my normal, when I get up and I leave my house, what I walk step into is a world that's much like me. So, um, and when that light comes on, you see it in so much of what you, so much of your everyday, you see it in advertising, you see it in the way people talk, the way they interact with each other, the way business is conducted oftentimes. And so at that point, then I said, you know, perhaps what I want to do is if there's a label in front of some of them, maybe that's where I want to start finding myself going more often. And when I say a label, I mean, you know, something like a black MBA event or African-American whatever or Hispanic this or you know, um, something other than just a plain event without a label in front of it. And so that's how you found me at that event that time is, uh, you know, it was, I think it was the Charlotte Black MBA something, or it may have been a national accounting because uh, there's some things I did at UNC Charlotte with that organization there from uh, UNC Charlotte. But um, I remember what you're talking about. We were in, a, I think it was a, generally a small venue Yep, and, Bank of America. And yeah, and you were given a presentation, and I have to admit, I don't truly remember what you were talking about. But as you recall, I think I was the only one there that looked like me. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and from a business standpoint, what else could you ask for? You walk in and you don't have to do anything, and you're automatically noticed. 
And so when you look at it from that standpoint, and I thought, you know, those maybe those are places I want to go to more. And and through those experiences, whether it was that event, you know, there's the Herb Gray events that I've been to, some of his events, and there's others in the Charlotte area that, that I've attended and elsewhere beyond Charlotte. And then I recognized the fact that you know, there's more to life than what I had experienced up to that point. And so as I was looking in at what most people may not know too, is I uh, sought to, um, I was wanting to do something more. And uh, so I started looking at really just some seminars and those seminars took me to uh, some doctoral programs. And I started looking at some of my options in the area because I wanted a program in person. I didn't want to do an online program mm-hmm. because, you know, there's a certain amount of ex- of the experience that you don't get remotely. And um, so uh, I started looking around. I narrowed it down to a program that UNC Charlotte had and a program that North Carolina A&T had. And I chose the A&T program. It's the, their doctoral program in leadership studies. And I chose that for several reasons. One is the fact that, you know, I was ready to go exp- to have the HBCU experience. Yeah. When I started that program, I was already, um, let's see, this was 2016. So I was 51 and I was at the point in life where I was ready. You know, I wanted to see what it felt like to be the, to be the exception. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, you know, my experience at North Carolina A&T has been exceptional. I've, uh, I'd recommend anyone who looks like me choosing HBCU to go get some of the higher education because it will give you, you know, it will give you a different perspective because you, you could teach the same class. You, mm-hmm. you take any class. I think you could teach the same class at a, what I now know is a PWI. A PWI is a predominantly white institution. Okay. HBCU. You could teach the same class at both, have the same syllabus or syllabi, and um, but I think the supplementary, no, the, the additional materials that are discussed and the experience of those in the class, is go, it's going to shape that class completely different between the HBCU and the, and the PWI. And you, and, you uh, said HBCU a couple of times. For those who don't know. HBCU means historically black uh, college or university. Um, And North Carolina happens to have um, probably the largest number of them. We have have several. And uh, A&T is is one of the premier HBCUs in the the country, not just the state. Mm -hmm. So um, so it's been a wonderful experience. And of course, I completed my, um, well, let me back up a little bit before I say I'm, I'm finished, which I am, but as far as completing my PhD. I'm just wrapping up those final details now, but the uh, I focused. I chose to focus on women in leadership, and how I got to that point was in the interview in the very beginning, the interviewing for the program. One of the professors said, "You know, if you're going to do a, a doctoral program and you do a dissertation, you're going to have to find something you're you're passionate about." Yeah. And I left that interview, think asking myself, you know, Kurt, what? what are you truly passionate about that you can get behind and do a dissertation? And, and I'll say there too, I didn't really understand the effort it was going to take to complete a PhD. Complete <laughs> a dissertation. You hear it, people will tell you about it, but until you live it, you just truly don't know it. Yeah. You don't know it. And when they talk about your life is going to change and everybody around you has to be supportive of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, embrace that. Try to get what you can out of it, but you're not going to quite understand it until you live it. Yeah. But uh, so I chose women in leadership 
uh, because my daughter, Michaela Quinn, you know, I recognized as she was growing up compared to her brother Grant that um, if she was going to be at a disadvantage in business, even though she is in many ways as comparable, if not better than Grant, not not to take anything away from Grant, but they're, right, they're, right. they're two they, different they, gears, but they got different strengths. And they have their different strengths, their different weaknesses. Both of them were exceptionally well through school. They did yep. exceptionally well through college. Uh, Michaela probably finished with a higher GPA than Grant. Um, of course, they took different tracks too. Mm -hmm. And uh, but my point is, is that regardless of how exceptional she is in the in the business world, particularly here in, in the United States, if not the Western world, she's going to be at a disadvantage just simply because she's a woman. Yeah. And you know, I, I knew I could get some passion about around the fact of well, let me look into women in leadership and see what I can't do to help her as well as the other women. And when I say the other women, you know, my mother's a good example of things that she had to endure. Um, I had my aunts, my grandmother, you know, all the women in my family, particularly coming from a Southern rural, rural area of North Carolina, um, you know, the, the, where women oftentimes, and, and I had many of my, you know, my grandmother's sisters, several of them went and completed, one in particular completed her graduate degree. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so several of the women in, in my family, particularly my grandmother's sisters, they have achieved higher education out uh, I don't think, I think I may have been the first male in my family to receive a, uh, a, uh, a college, a complete college education. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the women before me, several had done that before me. So, so that's a good example of the difference in education, but oftentimes the women, it, uh, not only in my family, but probably in many places find that they're standing in the, in the shadow of, of men that are around them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when it's my daughter, you can get some passion around your <laughs> my being disadvantaged. A father and daughter relationship. <laughs> it shows up. <laughs> so I focused on the women in leadership, and I had some colleagues just you know talking about what I was going to do with some colleagues. One again from UNC Charlotte, she said, "You know, we just started this women in business program at UNC Charlotte." Mm -hmm. And we had some business leaders, women business leaders from the business community come in and talk to us. And they were talking about the lack of women in the boardroom. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking there. And, and you know, for a dissertation, you're looking for the gap in the literature that's not really being discussed. Okay. And so the gap, as I was researching, you know, we talk about minorities. But and and there, when oftentimes when, when we're talking about minorities, we're talking about Afro Americans as a as a group. And there, oftentimes, it, uh, the focus ends up being on African-American men. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we talk about women, uh, again, as a group, uh, oftentimes the focus t tends to be on white women or what I call in my dissertation, European-American women mm -hmm. or European women in general because mm -hmm. of uh, you know, just, the just, just, the, just the history that's around the U.S. And, and much of the Western world. And so when you put ethnicity in front of that gender, that female gender, particularly, those are the gaps that aren't discussed at any length currently today in the literature. That's what I found. And of course, my lived experience will tell me, and it'll probably tell a lot of people if they're honest, that here in America, while we all have our challenges and no, no group is, is immune from having things that get in their way, you know, Hispanics have their unique challenges, Asians may have their unique challenges, but here in America, if we give, if we're honest about it, the African-American and the Af and the black woman in particular, I think has some of the most unique challenges of, of any of the groups that I'm aware of. 
Well, that's that's interesting. So you wound up with, you know, start kind of starting with your own experience saying, hey, I want to live something different. There's a bigger world out here besides me, which mm-hmm. led you to start reflecting on your life and your daughter's life, yeah. which got you to um, a historically black community college, uh, college and university. And then from there, you started focusing on differences in leadership, differences mm-hmm. in perception, and then women, go, black, African-American women going into the boardroom? Well, or not going, that's the problem. We're really not getting the opportunity for the boardroom. And, uh, and so that's what my, I ended up focusing on and actually my title, my title of my dissertation is an exploration of the path for African-American women to and the diversification of the corporate boardroom. And so I researched, you know, what is that path? What are the obstacles? Um, and you know, where are we at today? And my frame, my, my theoretical frame for doing the study, my three pillars of the, of the framework is uh, a blivness theory, which is my lived experience, mm-hmm. you know, about how so much of my normal allows me to be oblivious to other people's reality, their day to day. And the mm-hmm. black woman in particular, and to that point, um, uh, black feminist thought is part of that process, which talks about how the black women in, in America have a unique experience because of our history mm-hmm. that she realizes oppression, uh, bias, and racism that are un- unknown to other oppressed groups. It's not to say that there aren't. So, other- so let's slow it down, and because some people will get that immediately, mm-hmm. but others are going to go, "What are you talking about?" So <laughs> what is it? <laughs> <laughs> and oh, by the way, hmm, a white guy's about to tell me about my lived experience here. <laughs> yeah, I can't really so, tell so, you so but I want to, I want to unpack that because that's pretty deep. What you're talking about? It is. What did you find? What did you notice? What did you find? What did you come to the conclusion of in terms of what is that experience that is so different? You know, one of the things is. Um, you know, a good example of one of the lights that came on for me as I was getting really, I think it, it was even before I was in the doctoral program or maybe after I got started, I don't really recall exactly, but some of the events several years ago where you started hearing about uh, black men being shot by, by law enforcement. Um, I think at Ferguson, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken, is maybe the one I'm talking about. I was supposed to have a, uh, a lunch one day with a, uh, right around when that happened, with a colleague of mine, a, a black woman. And that morning she calls me up or she sends me a text action and says, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it. And I don't remember if we got on a phone conversation or if it was just in text, I don't recall, but eventually uh, she shared that it was, you know, that event just had her emotionally in a place where she wasn't, um, didn't feel comfortable having lunch. Um, she wasn't ready to get out, you know, I guess, get out that day. And I asked a few other colleagues, black women colleagues of mine, I said, you know, this is what happened. Does it make you feel the same way? And I was shocked. I was, I say maybe not shocked, but I was surprised that, you know, those kind of events for me up to that point was, it was a terrible event. I don't think anyone will argue that it's a terrible event, but for me, it's a terrible event in a world of terrible events. Mm-hmm. Again, it's mm-hmm. for so much of the world too often, you know, it might be more, more often than not, whether it's every day, I can't, won't necessarily say it's every day, but it, it's, it's an event that's not surprising to happen. 
So for me, it's just another terrible event in a world of terrible events. But for this colleague of mine, and then what I finally learned that day was several other colleagues of mine, and which I think might extend on out into the, the black community here in America, is that to them or to, to her, it was as if it was her brother. Right. As if it was her father. And that wasn't, you know, that wasn't my experience. And that gap between the way she perceived it. And here she is, she's down in Charlotte. This was up in- um, St. Louis. St. Louis. No connection, mm-hmm. no family connection, nothing there. It's just that um, black person in America's experience, mm-hmm. whatever that is, which obviously isn't my experience. Mm-hmm. That has her and others like her viewing that event. Yes, it's a terrible, tragic event, but for her, it was so personal. Mm-hmm. For me, it was, removed from my everyday, or mm-hmm. yeah, it's removed from my everyday, it's removed my, from my family. It doesn't impact me the same mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a little bit of that lived experience that we all have that gives our reality its solid foundation to stand on. But my lived experience obviously is gonna be different from yours. And if I don't take the time to understand your lived experience, mm-hmm. or at least give it validity, you know, sometimes I may not truly understand it, but I have to give it validity that right. when you say what you say and you say this is the way this ha- impacts me, I can't just dismi- dismiss and say, well, you need to see it this way. Mm-hmm. And it's easy for me to say you need to see it this way or this is the way it really is because so much of the world that we operate in here in, in North Carolina or the, or the United States, so much it's, it's more aligned with my normal. Mm-hmm. And when I get up and I walk outside of my house and go into the world, so much of the mechanics of the world aligns with the way I've experienced the world. Mm-hmm. And for different people, that's going to be a different experience, particularly if they're not in the majority. Right. And for and those it's, of it's, us it's, in the majority, that's some of the disconnect that we have. It's not that you need to see it my way. You know, you do see it my way, but the, the gap is, can I see it your way? And can I give that way validity just because it's your lived experience? And then I think it's what you're describing makes me think about two points. One is, it's more than just being able to see my point of view or how I see the world. It's being able to feel in some way, get connected to, empathize feel some way that, oh my goodness, that impacted you. It didn't impact me the same way, but it impacted you. And I can connect to the fact that maybe because you see it differently, it has a different meaning for you. Right. It's that validity. It's valid because it's your lived experience. It's not for me to tell you, you need to see it this way or that way. Right. Yeah. I can share what I know and share my experience and the way I see the world and perhaps why I see the world that way. But I have to stop talking sometimes and allow you to talk and not interrupt you or all the other things. That's truly two-way conversation. If you find yourself, if you want to learn something new, that you find yourself talking, particularly telling people that how they need to see it or they should see it this way, if you're doing all the talking, you can't learn. Right. You can only and you truly, can't hear either. <laughs> you can only truly learn if you're listening. And, and, you know, you hear the other person. Right. And to do that, you have to be quiet sometime and just mm-hmm. let them talk mm-hmm. and give their experience validity because it's their experience.
in learning and going through this experience and and then seeing that you said so there's lived experience then there's the path that um either opens up and allows black women to be part of boards or be part of even um, leadership positions, because I'm not sure from my perspective, there's much difference. And you're right about the other piece I wanted to go back to a little bit. When I was in corporate America, every time someone who looked like me was arrested, charged, killed, not only was there a pain, but there's a way in which the white world looks at me and says, you're representative of every black person. And that is a heavy burden in general. So if one goes bad, they immediately reflect it back to why, why are you different? How is that that way? Tell us how Black people are. And that experience kind of separates us because it feels like people are inadvertently, um, not only vicariously living, but more voyeurism and holding me accountable for every Black person in America for whatever they do. And generally, it's only the bad things because we really don't talk about the good things. Bad news sales, good news doesn't, right? Right. It does. We've <laughs> 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 experienced a lot of that here more recently, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, than lately. And so I, I think I'd like to hear what you learned in your research around the path and the obstacles to Black women either getting in leadership or boards corporate boards? Because I, I think there's, I, I'm not even sure I know. You know, there's a, there's a few things that happen. And, um, you know, one thing I want to make sure that I, I make clear, I know for the participants who participated in my study, and right. they were 12 corporate board directors, I had four black women, four white women, and four white men. And, and of course, I'm really looking at the dynamic of the black woman because she's some of the least represented in the boardroom compared to the white man, because he's the most represented in the corporate boardroom, particularly here in America. So I'll say that, you know, our, all the directors I spoke with, they all were extremely passionate about making sure that they're comprising the board. That's going to be the best, be the most beneficial for that organization and their stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So, and, and they all recognize you know, the, the lack of diversity in different ways. And so, um, you know, they were all extremely passionate about comprising the board that gave us the best results. Um, but along the way, I think a little bit, as I alluded to earlier, that oblivious theory, uh, and so you got oblivious theory, networking, and, bl and black feminist thought. That was my framework. And of course, networks, you, to have visibility for the boardroom, you as a potential board candidate, you have to start putting yourself in those board networks. Mm -hmm. Well, if those board, if the, the, the overriding majority in America's corporate boardrooms are people who look like me, then if you want to be in the boardroom, you need to get in that person's network, people who look like you know, me, those people in the boardroom. And so particularly for a black woman, you're going to have to find yourself going places that it may, may not be your normal. And you want to find where th that is and you want to get yourself there and make it part of your normal where you can navigate it and, and uh, operate in it where you feel comfortable and you can go about making those connections. On the flip side, boards, you know, one of the important things about a, the, uh, the responsibility of directors in a boardroom is to ensure they have a robust succession plan. And part of that robust succession plan is in, ensuring they have an expansive, inclusive pipeline to handle all the all the 
dynamics that happen in, in our business world or in our societies. And, you know, this summer is a good example is how many corporate boards were found maybe that they recognized a gap in their boardroom that they didn't have a representation of, of a black person and particularly a black woman. Mm-hmm. I think you'd find a lot of them. And based on some of my interviews with my participants, some of the black women were getting calls now saying, what other black women do you know are, do, do, that you know of that are board ready talent? Mm-hmm. And what I'll say is there's more board ready talent amongst us that people don't recognize, particularly the board environment, because it's not following the traditional paths. Mm-hmm. And women oftentimes, as you probably can speak to as better than I can, will, will get funneled off into areas that the literature descri- describes as soft managerial responsibilities. Right. Well, some of those responsibilities, whether it's HR, marketing, and so forth, they are starting to be recognized for the boardroom as, as areas, as gaps that they need, that, that, that exist in today's business world. So they're getting some recognition, but Oftentimes, women will find that they're funneled off in these, let's just call them soft managerial areas that are, are not on the traditional path to the board meeting. Mm-hmm. And then Which they, is basically having uh, an operations or finance background, right? Yeah, and, you know, if you could have a CEO experience, a right. CFO or a or chief operational officer, a COO, those are some of the three key areas that will get you in the board meeting. Right. And finance, operations. Um, so, uh, but... You know, women will find that they're sent other areas. And then there, they may be given some good responsibility. They may lead a division. They may re- lead a, uh, you know, a large group in their organization. And they may have full responsibility for the P&L. Mm-hmm. Um, and that P&L responsibility is extremely important for the boardroom. But they don't have the title. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have a, the CEO title. They don't have that, that C-suite title that, right. that gets the recognition that it, that it needs. So how do we find our, you know, how does the board environment that's looking for our next director, how do they look two, three levels below that they're, where they're looking today? Right. Because that talent's there. Mm-hmm. And that talent may be leading, you know, a division that's a multi-million dollar budget, you know, a large multi-million dollar budget. I know mm-hmm. a colleague of mine, he talked about he never felt that he was that great of a uh, C-suite leader, but he ran a division that had 300 people in it, you know, a 20, 30 million dollar budget. And that's that's a small company. Mm-hmm. And that's a CEO of a of a of reason of a regionally small, successful company that mm-hmm. that's you know a multi-million, 20, 30, 50 million dollar budget with two, three, four hundred people. Yeah, that's a good sized company. I'd like to have that company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyhow, so we have to recognize that that's where a lot of our women talent, black women talent in particular, we're, they're doing the work. They're just not necessarily doing it in the C-suite levels that typically get recognized for the boardroom. And then, um, so when they talk about, they can't, when, when our C-suite leaders, our CEOs talk about they can't find the black talent, I'm mm-hmm. going to say they're not looking where that talent's at. Right. There, They just have to expand their vision or their view of where that talent is at. So, so there's- let me, let me stop you there and ask the question because um, this summer I got several calls from tech companies in particular, living out mm-hmm. in California, who they're bored or somehow they were being pressed to find more diverse talent for their companies and you're in tech. So they made the phone calls. I had the meeting with them and their board and you know, did it all Zoom and whatnot. And I could tell in the meeting that as soon as it was over, 
they went, okay, we checked that box. We're okay. What moves a person? What actually has to happen to move them from, well, we're doing okay without it. We'll get to it tomorrow because it's not really about running a business today. And we talk, you know, everybody talks about the, it's good for the business. It, it opens up your mind, et cetera. But when you're a $20, $30 million company or a $5 million or $1 million company, and that was as big as you thought your company was going to get, and you're doing okay, and you got buyers every day because every business does, why would I want to take the time to go and dig someplace else? You know, it's what you don't know. You know, we know what we know. Obviously, we don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's those things that we don't know that that diversity of thought, diversity of experience brings to the to the table that will help give us better insights. And, and again, this summer is a good example. How many companies were left prepared that in their executive leadership and their organizations, they didn't have the representation of the people who were getting um, that were that was in the news. Mm-hmm. They were talking about their lived experience and why do companies miss that is because they may not have the leadership, the executive leadership who had who can speak to that in mm-hmm. their organizations. Mm-hmm. And why should I care? Um, you know, part of that having I would say to most people who look, you may be doing what you think you need to do. You may be think you may think you're doing all the right things, and what what more can somebody ask for you? But until you feel like until you can go navigate another community and go put yourself there and feel as comfortable in that community as you would your own, as you would your own next family reunion or doing whatever your normal every day is, until you can navigate other communities and feel that comfortable. And when I look at Diane, that I see not just Diane Cooper, this person who does podcasts, but I see Diane Cooper, this person that's you know, an incredible woman that I want to make sure she has, I want to bring her along. I want to make sure she has an equal opportunity, ec- equity and opportunity as anybody else that I know in my inner circle. I want to okay. make And you know, Denise, what I would say is when, when particularly people who look like me, when they can see, they can look at Denise Cooper and see an incredible woman here that is doing you know, amazing things in the business community and, not, and see it as someone that they want to help make sure that they bring along mm-hmm. and just not another person out here doing whatever they're doing. When they can start feeling that, that closer connection and they can go to Denise and go to the events that she has, the places she goes and feel as comfortable navigating those events and being in that space as they would their own. And when I say their own, I'm talking about you know, it could be a family reunion. It could be what they do in their, their every day. Or the Chamber of Commerce or Chamber another Commerce. business. Yeah. yeah. So when, when you can feel as comfortable to be in any of these different spaces, um, and, and you may think you, you can, and I would say if you think you can, then go put yourself in those places right. that you normally don't go, that you normally don't find yourself at, where you're the exception. You're the only one in the room. And do you feel as comfortable there as you would the places you normally are, if you find that you're not comfortable, then you need to spend more time in those places. And so if, if you I'm don't not know comfortable, at, you know, and because I think we're, we have a heightened sensibility right now, particularly white men. Um, I think they have a heightened sensibility that they're going to suck toes and put their foot in their mouth if they mm-hmm. say the wrong thing, mm-hmm. do the wrong thing. You know, somebody's going to jump at them. And, you know, that, that not wanting to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing is innate in all of us. 
So if I've never been to an event and I'm, I may not even be conscious that I'm scared I'm going to screw up, but there'll be a whole lot of self-talk that says you don't belong. They wouldn't want you there. They're not going to welcome you. I mean, there's just a lot of talk in your head that will keep you and make you very comfortable. You know, I don't belong to, I'm really too busy. I'll go to the next one that we do that, that brings procrastination in our life. Mm-hmm. At some point, you had to make that first step, that first leap to say, I'm going to go to that event. How did you muster up the, I'm just going to do it? Well, you know, I, and I what can't... was your welcome? And add in there, what was your welcome? I mean, how, did, how have you felt going to these events? I will say that the first one or two I went to, I, you know, I, I recognized without a doubt that I was the exception. Mm-hmm. And then, but I think if you go, if you're truly authentic about the reasons you're going and you leave all the other stuff out of the picture and you just bring your authentic self, you'll find that everyone around you can be just as authentic as you are and that there's a good, warm, comfortable environment. And I, and I will also think, I, you tell me if I'm right or wrong here, Denise, but if I'm at an event that's mostly in, where I'm the exception, then obviously I'm there. I'm, I'm intentional in, in being there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, I don't have to be there. Uh, there's all other things I can do where I go to, to places I'm more accustomed to going. So if I'm going to something where I'm obviously sticking out, um, I think some people recognize that as, well, there's some intentionality here. And if, and if there's that authenticity that comes through the genuine, the genuineness of somebody that they want to be there for all the right reasons, then I think my experience has been I've been extremely well received at virtually everywhere I've been mm-hmm. where I've been the exception. Yeah. So um, that's why I've always feel comfortable going again. Um, yeah. Now I will say to your point a little bit, there are times where I take a moment of pause and there are times where I've shared things from my perspective that are true and so forth. But again, that other person's lived experience will see my, whatever it is I'm talking about from a different, from a different angle. Yeah. And, and there is some hesitation at times to be as open as I may otherwise be because I know, you know, I know who I am. I know enough about world events and world history to know how some people perceive that. And so it will get people, particularly in today's environment, you know, whether it's the Me Too movement or whether now the Black Lives Matter, you know, I'm neither of those. And I'm oftentimes the white male is a large part of those problems, mm-hmm. if not the big part of those problems. So there's a certain hesitation that you'll, I think you is legitimate and you have to recognize that some people may not be as forthcoming. They may not want to put them, themselves in those environments because mm-hmm. they, they may feel like they just can't win. Mm-hmm. There is a certain amount of that that happens because um, I've experienced myself, you know, with the, despite the best intentions, somebody else's lived experience will have them perceiving what I'm saying from a different view. Yeah. And, and again, you have to listen and you have to give that person's experience validity. And that goes both ways. Mm-hmm. And that's both ways in that regards. Uh, as I was talking earlier about the boardroom environment, the networking that it takes there, that's a two way street. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be in the boardroom, you need to make sure you're networking with people who are in the boardroom. Right. If you're already there, you want to make sure you expand your networks right. to include all the possible talent that could benefit your organization. Particularly, you know, this summer, again, is a good example of uh, how you need to be prepared, nimble, and make sure you have that 
large array of experience to pull from when you recognize that you have gaps in your boardroom? Yeah, two things. One is um, two, two final questions because we're coming to the end of our time. One is what you talk about is very, feels very different to me than some of the things we may have done when, when you know, the summer happened of, of people are not represented, African-Americans, Asians, in, Latinos, LBGQ, et cetera, are not represented in the room and networking on it. But it also brings up that a lot of reasons why we are unable to come together is this issue of fear. I'm afraid I don't want to do more harm. I, I didn't do any harm in the first place. I don't want to be blamed for having harm. I don't even know what I don't know. I think you would look at me if I were in your shoes being, if I were white, this is my projection. And, and I began to see all of that's happening in the discrimination. And even if I wasn't quite sure it was valid, I would be fearful that, well, they're going to treat me like they've been treated. And that would be a huge barrier. And the other piece of it is, is that when I think about a lot of and hear a lot of the diversity and inclusion programs that go on, it in many ways, it, it triggered shame in me. And I felt like it triggered shame in white people in the room. Mm -hmm. And yeah. shame is the biggest barrier to us ever coming together. If you, I don't know if you've participated in diversity programs or not, but how do we get past that? We have to listen more and give the other person's experience the validity it deserves because it's their experience. It's their, the way they've experienced the world. It may not be mine and it may not be a, you know, the majority of the people, but there's validity in the fact that this is the way you see the world. And so, the, um, you know, as you were asking the question, I don't really know if I had the answer other than the fact that we have to give people credit for their experience, mm -hmm. let that have validity that it deserves because it's your experience. I can't tell you you should experience it this way because that's my view of the way the world is. Now I can say that, but I can't expect you to just align and, and jump over to my side and say, yeah, you're right. Yeah, this is the way I should be seeing things because this is the way most people see it. Well, yeah, that, that may be true, but it still doesn't, dismiss the fact that your experience is your experience yeah. you see it through your view you see it through your prism and we have to give that credit we have to give that validity and allow you to stand on that foundation so um you know i can go on about that but i would just say we have to listen more and if you truly want to learn about how to do things better if you find yourself doing the majority of the talking you may not be learning as much as you think you are gotcha and the last question is is this has been fascinating, and obviously we're coming to the end of the hour, but how can people get connected with you? Well, you know, one of the easiest ways is to find me on LinkedIn. And so my LinkedIn is a real simple. It's Kirk Beatty, a one word, K-I-R-K-B-E-A-T-T-Y. So you can also look me up through uh, Data Tech, uh, which is uh, Data Tech Information Services. We, of course, have a LinkedIn page. We also have a website. That's uh, www.datatechis.com. And data tech is D-A-T-A-T-E-C-H-I-S.com. And uh, of course, with the leadership work that I'm doing now, I'm doing that under the brand name of Adwat. And Adwat, is, that's a French word for skilled or skillful woman. And so with the women in leadership's perspective I'm taking and trying to you know, make sure I'm promoting that uh, mindset 
uh, I thought that was a good fit for the kind of work I want to do in that space. Well, folks, we've come to the end of another great conversation with a wisdom builder. Wow, wisdom builders, love them. That was powerful. I hope you'll agree. As I always say, that's a wrap. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode and you'll hear real life conversations about what good leadership looks like, feels like, why most HR functions, that structure in your organization doesn't deliver the great culture that you are looking for and what it takes to do better and be better. If you like what you heard, share it. If you don't, call me, talk to me, let me know what's going on because I know either way it's going to start a great conversation. One where you'll learn how to close the gap by creating a pathway from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Let me thank Ivan G. Hall for generously allowing me to use his music and the C-Suite Radio Network for hosting me every week. Well, again, that's a wrap. We'll talk to you later. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.